This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for, the, for, than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Good morning, First Press. You're all half awake. I'm glad you're here. Um, Just one uh, piece of announcements that I wanted to add was uh, Chris and Miranda Caldwell did have their little baby boy. Uh, His name is Jude Christopher. Um, there were some scary moments there. Um, Miranda's been uh, battling just some health issues, and they, uh, so they could use your prayers as they're still both in the hospital, J- baby Jude and Miranda, and Chris hasn't been able to go up as much as he likes, but we just want to just pray for a speedy recovery. Uh, everything seems like it's heading the right direction, so we're, we're really pleased with that. We just want to continue to be praying for them. If you don't know who Chris is, let me introduce uh, you to him. Chris is one of our church planters who actually has been serving over in Monroe for some time and then just came back um, our way and has been serving with us. He's helped with the youth, and he's eventually going to be going off to Wisconsin to help uh, Tom Desmond, one of our partners, in planting a church there in Wisconsin. And so we're really excited about that. But I do want to just ask you to remember Miranda and baby Jude in your prayers. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here 
And Lord, this is a special opportunity um, in the sense that it's a new year that lies in front of us. And God, as we sit in this place, um, I know, Lord, we have a lot of hopes and aspirations for 2022. If we're honest, 2020 and 2021 have been pretty rough. And so, God, we're asking that uh, you would help us to um, just find delight in you and that you would be our chief joy. But, Lord, we do ask that you would bless our way into this new year. I pray for the families of First Prez. I pray, Lord, uh, specifically for uh, Miranda and baby Jude. I pray that you would place your hand upon them. Lord, we're just thankful for the safety and the upkeep that you've already sustained them with. Uh, I pray for Chris as well. I know this has been hard on them as a family, and we just pray that you continue to bless them and strengthen them, uh, and just uh, ultimately, Lord, we celebrate the birth of baby Jude. And God, we pray, Lord, now as we gather around your word, we pray that our minds and our hearts would be fixed upon you. Lord, there are a lot of things that distract us from the importance of our walk with Christ, and we pray that this morning our eyes, our ears, and our hearts would be attuned with you, that we would see you, that we would hear you, and Lord, that we would know you. And those areas where we're out of alignment, bring conviction, uh, bring uh, chastisement so that we can be corrected and uh, pursue righteousness and holiness, and that ultimately, Lord, we would be faithful stewards of all the blessings that have been bestowed upon us. God, help us to love you above all things. And Lord, we just pray that you would protect uh, me today, Lord, as I preach. I pray that you would guard my words. Help me, Lord, not to say more nor less than you've given me to say. But God, I pray that I would be faithful uh, to your word in its entirety. I pray these things, Lord, looking for you to do as you are so faithful in doing, changing us more and more into the image of Christ. And we look forward to that changing occurring today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. As you look at our text, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, one word kind of screams off the page, and that word is the word mission. Uh, when you think about mission, mission can mean a lot of things to different people. I want you to think about the word mission for a salesperson. The word mission for a salesperson can mean meeting quotas or company goals. Uh, the word mission for a politician can mean simply winning an election. Uh, the term mission for an athlete can mean victory, gaining the prize that you set yourself for. And unfortunately, the Michigan Wolverines didn't achieve that. Um, but what about for a mother and a father? A mother and a father have a mission as well. Their means of uh, providing for their children, their, their training of their children. For what purpose? That one day their children would leave the nest and be able to uh, function and set out on their own. But what about us as Christians? What is our mission? I think this is a great theme for a new year as we think about what we've been called to do. But very clearly in our text, it, it screams mission. And the mission of a Christian is this. It is that we are to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. As you think about that, I want you to think specifically in terms of Jesus calling the 72. And as he does that, there are some specific aspects that he's calling them to be ready for and expect along the life journey of this mission. And I believe it has some glimpses for our mission that Jesus has given the church in the Great Commission, the mission to go and to tell and to proclaim the good news, making disciples as we go. So let's take a look and see what that mission looks like. 
If you turn your eyes to Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it reads this way. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, every town and place where he himself was about to go. I draw your attention to that verse because the very first thing we see is that Jesus is appointing 72. But I want you to notice that verse 1 actually starts with the word after. After. Meaning all the verses that precede it had kind of set this moment up. So what verses are we referring to? But Jesus preparing the disciples. Jesus teaching them about the cost of following Jesus. But here in chapter 10, he's now sending some 72 on mission. I want you to look at this idea of appointment. Because that's exactly what it says, the Lord appointed. The Lord appointed. It means the Lord set apart. The Lord had chosen. Uh, these individuals did not choose themselves. It wasn't a volunteer uh, raising of the hands. It was no Jesus actually choosing and appointing 72 to be on mission. In John chapter 15, verse 16, it says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, the understanding of that is that God is the one who appoints. God is the one who's in charge. And we see that here in the person and work of Jesus as he's appointing those he's sending on mission. What's interesting is the way he refers to these 72. Look at the text. He says, the Lord appointed 72 others. What does that mean, the 72 others? What actually draws us to this conclusion that this wasn't part of the twelve. The 72 weren't made up of the apostles, those disciples that followed Jesus everywhere. In fact, I could go so far as to say the 72 actually included ordinary, everyday Christians or followers of Jesus. And this means a lot as we look at the fact that God is using ordinary people to go before him and share the good news of Jesus. These weren't the apostles, these weren't the pastors, if you will, these weren't the sent, the sent missionaries, but they were sent missionaries in that they were everyday believers who Jesus had appointed to go before him. And as they went, notice they went two by two. This is an important point as we think about the mission, that they weren't set alone, but they were actually going with another. Paul follows this exact same model in his ministry. We realize that when Paul is called out to go and begin the mission work, he actually is called along with Barnabas. Or how about later on when him and Barnabas split ways and we see Paul with Titus. We see Paul with Silas. We constantly are seeing Paul with others as he's partnering in the ministry together. Why would he do that? He would do that for mutual support and fellowship. And I think that's exactly why Jesus was sending the disciples out, not alone, but together. And I want you to think about that for a moment, how often we try to do this thing called the walk with Christ alone. We get the idea that we don't need the fellowship of believers or the communion of saints, but we absolutely do. We need and depend on one another for strength. When one is low, the other is able to pull them up. When one is weak, the other is strong. The idea of being bonded with someone else in our walk is essential. And we see that as ultimately Jesus says that sends the 72 others out two 
by two. Notice he sends them on ahead of him. What we learned uh, last week is that Jesus was ultimately setting his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus was setting his face for his very personal mission of being our sacrifice on the cross. But here Jesus is sending these 72 into the cities and the, and the highways and the byways. For what purpose? To make known Jesus the King. This is really important if you think about it for a moment, that these individuals were actually announcing the coming of the king. They were preparing the people for Jesus' presence. They were preparing the people for the day they would be face to face with Christ. Now, I don't know if you know a whole lot about the story of Jesus. Maybe some of you do. Maybe you've grown up in the church. But there is something known as the triumphal entry of, into Jerusalem of Jesus. And that triumphal entry is the day when Jesus shows up at Jerusalem at last. And when he shows up, ultimately the people are cheering and, and singing. And they're laying palm branches down. And, and there's just this great celebration because Jesus, the Messiah, has appeared. I believe that's a lot because of the work of the 72 as they go from city to city and proclaim the good news of Jesus. As we look at verse 2, it actually tells us, though, why they were sent. Yes, they were sent on ahead. Yes, they were sent to share the news of the king's coming. But verse 2 actually tells us why. Notice what it says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Many of us who've grown up in the church, we've heard that phrase a lot, but I want you to think about something that the Bible is actually saying in that statement. The harvest is plentiful. Do you feel that way? Uh, sometimes if we're really honest, we don't feel the harvest is all that plentiful. Uh, specifically maybe in the state of Michigan or the United States or particularly in our places of work or in our neighborhood or maybe even in our families. And we think, yeah, maybe it's uh, plentiful somewhere else, but surely not here. But friends, look at what Scripture says. It says the harvest is plentiful. And that means, despite how we may feel, God is working in the hearts of men, drawing them to himself. That's good news, especially when we understand that salvation is the work of God. We don't have to have all the right answers. We don't have to have all the, 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 uh, the pizzazz to be able to present the gospel in just such a perfect way. We don't all have to have uh, evangelism degrees to be able to go out and share the good news. No, ultimately, it is God who saves. I don't know about you, but that brings me a lot of peace. It brings me a lot of peace every time I step into the pulpit. It brings me peace when I'm working in my neighborhood and talking to my neighbors or I'm out in the streets and, and talking to those in the community. It brings me peace to know that God is the Savior of men, not Aaron Carr. And it should bring you great peace as well. But one of the things we need to be reminded from this text is that people are ripe. Think about the last two years. I can tell you one of the things the pastors here have experienced is experiencing through the talk with many and even our own church and community is there's a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And we thought, man, this thing's going to go away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change really quick, but it's kind of stayed put and it's just kind of hovered over us. And we've experienced a lot of that as we've ministered to people within our own community. 
But here's the reality, is that Jesus and Jesus alone can take bad, scary, anxious situations and he can flip them upside down. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the hope of this church, that we truly believe Jesus is the Savior of men, that he takes what is bad and he can make it joyful. He can make it good and he can make it perfect. Jesus wastes nothing. So all the stress, all the anxiety, all the worry, all the fear that the two last two years have provided really have created a harvest of people who are longing for joy. People that are longing for hope. People that are honestly looking for answers to their questions. You know, one of the things that actually happened uh, this past year was somebody, and I'll leave their name out just for their own private, but they contacted the church and said, hey, could I come talk to the pastor? And so they set up an appointment, and they came in, and they sat down, and they said, hey, you know, I've been wrestling with a lot this year, been really anxious, and so I did what I only know to do. I grabbed a Bible, which I, you know, hadn't been to church probably since I was a very little person, and I started reading. And as I started reading, I started realizing there's answers to my questions, but I need someone to help talk these things through. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just blown away by the answers this person's giving. And I realized that the Holy Spirit has been teaching this person. And the Holy Spirit has been growing this person up in their faith. And I'm sitting back and I'm just celebrating what the Holy Spirit has been doing. Because what I realized is the harvest is plentiful. But if we just look in the news, or if we just look out our windows, or maybe even from our own perspective, it doesn't look all that bright. But see, when we only look from our perspective, we're limited in our scope. We're limited in our perspective. We're li limited in what we can really see. But when we truly have, in a sense, the corrected vision of the gospel, we see how hungry people are for truth. How desperate they are for hope. And friends, that's what the gospel brings. So as we look at our text and Jesus says to these 72 that he's sending out, the harvest is plentiful. He means it. And he means it to us today. The harvest is plentiful. But there's a problem. The laborers are few. That's kind of a shock. I want you to think about a movie that I saw as a kid. It was a movie called Places in the Heart. Anybody here seen it? Sally Fields was in it. I remember as a little child seeing this, and it really captivated me because in the storyline of the movie, her husband passes away, and she's left to care for her family. And one of the ways she's going to provide for her family as she lives on this farm is to raise a crop. The problem is she knows nothing personally about farming. And so she's really desperate to find help. And ultimately, God brings her help along the way through various people that are in her life. But there becomes a very end problem that to get this great crop that now has, has busted forth, she needs laborers. And she needs help to bring them in. And friends, I think that's the situation we're at today, is we look around and we see that the real harvest really isn't that plentiful, so most people think, I don't need to really do anything. I'm just kind of waiting for Jesus to return. But no, if we have the right perspective, we see the harvest is plentiful, but the problem is the laborers are few. See, if we're honest, the harvest being plentiful is not our view, but Scripture says it is. 
So despite our feeling, we need to trust and obey. And Jesus says the problem isn't the harvest, the problem is the laborers, so therefore what should we do about it? Notice Jesus' answer at the end of verse 2. He says, therefore, pray. That sound kind of seems uh, counterproductive here, Lord. You're saying the harvest is plentiful, and, and you're saying there's no laborers, and so what you want us to do is to hold a prayer meeting? Yeah. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Pray. And the reason is, notice the answer, pray because the Lord of the harvest will send the laborers into his harvest. He's the one who owns the harvest. It's his, and he's the one who appoints. He's the one who sends. Our job is to pray. Many of us would have thought the answer was maybe to hold a seminar on evangelism. Or maybe to produce some kind of recruiting program to get more people who would be willing to go and do this. We could do a, maybe a gifts test and find out who has the spiritual gift of evangelism. But that's not what Jesus says at all. And what Jesus actually says is to do is to pray. To pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Not to hold more training seminars or uh, more recruiting meetings. We're told to pray. We're to pray to the Lord of the harvest because the harvest belongs to him. We need to pray to the Lord to send laborers, to raise up, to appoint missionaries, evangelists, and church planners. Friends, let me ask you a question. How often do you pray that God would raise up missionaries? How often do you pray that God would raise up evangelists? How often do you pray that God would raise up church planters for our very own neighborhoods, for our very own community, for the very own state of Michigan? How often do we pray for the United States to have evangelists and missionaries and church planters? How often do we pray that the rest of the world, the places that are unreached, would have missionaries, evangelists, and church planters? And yet that is exactly what Jesus tells us to do, to pray, to pray. Is it because maybe we don't see the harvest as really being all that plentiful? Is that why we don't pray? Is it that we think too highly of our own skills and recruiting and training that we think that's the reason we don't need to pray? Or is it that we truly have missed the understanding that prayer is about utter dependence? that ultimately what we need to do is get on our knees and plead to the one we know who truly can provide. See, that's exactly the message here in this 10th chapter, the provision of God for the mission. To make matters worse and to make more things stark so that we really see the need for utter dependence, we see what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, now go your way. Basically, hurry up, get out the door. And then he says, as they're kind of leaving, he says, behold, I'm sending you as lambs out to the slaughter, out, out in the midst of wolves. That's really encouraging, Jesus. I mean, think about that for a moment. He's, he's encouraging them as they go on this mission where the harvest is plentiful, where they've been told to pray, they've been appointed by Jesus to go, and as they're walking through the door to leave, he says, oh, by the way, I'm sending you out as lambs. 
in the midst of wolves. Look at those words for a minute. I'm sending you out as lambs. He doesn't even call them sheep. He calls them lambs, like little babies. Little baby lambs. That's who he's sending out. Those, those little lambs that are even dependent upon their mother for care. You see what he's really doing here? He's stressing how dependent they must be upon God. See, as we read this, we would ask the normal question, how do you even expect these, old, these missionaries to survive? God, come on, how do you even expect them to survive? You're sending them out to the slaughter, and they're just little lambs. How do you expect them to survive? Well, here's his response. He's basically saying this. They just need to be totally dependent on me. I'm the one who protects. I'm the one who protects. You know, one of the most amazing things about the early missionaries is that when they would go towards their, their field for service, they would most of the times pack their belongings in a coffin. Think about that for a moment. As they're preparing to be sent to their foreign places of destination, they're, they're loading the boats, so to speak, they pack their belongings in a coffin. What does that say? They expected to die where they were going. They didn't expect to come home. They didn't view this as just some uh, little escape, uh, excursion to see some other foreign place. They expected that there would be a cost, and that cost would be their lives. What do those missionaries need to do? They need to have absolute, total dependence upon God for their protection. But see, it's not just about the protection. Look at verse 4. He says, they're to carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. They're not even to greet anyone on the road. They're supposed to be going, and they're supposed to go with no extra resources. They're supposed to go traveling light. And we ask the question, well, who's going to provide for them? Who's going to care for them? That's a normal question. To which the response comes, they need to be totally dependent upon God for his provision. Do you hear it? Totally dependent upon God for protection and totally dependent upon God for provision. That's what this ministry looks like. That's what it means to fulfill your mission. Now, there's a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller lived in Bristol, England. He lived in the 1800s, and his desperate desire was to start an orphanage to care for the poor kids that were just covering the streets, sleeping in the gutter, so to speak. He was so moved that something had to be done, he stepped forward and said, I'm going to start an orphanage. And people looked at him and said, George, how are you going to do that? You don't even have any money. You know what his response was? I'm going to pray. And that's exactly what George Mueller did. He prayed constantly. He prayed for everything they ever needed. And they got buildings. And they got food. They got provision of clothes and care and support. It was God answering the prayers of George Mueller. And it was God answering our prayers as well. It's understanding that the point here of the terms of mission is all about utter dependence upon the king about totally trusting God to protect as well as to provide. If we're honest with ourselves, that's really foreign to us, especially as a Western Christian. We're more about our comfort than we are about anything else. 
the idea of, of people going where they actually could die. The idea of, of people going and not even knowing how they're going to be cared for sounds crazy to us. But that's exactly the type of people that Christ was looking for and using on his mission. Friends, I ask you this question. Are we trusting God for his provision and protection as we seek to fulfill our mission? I want you to really think about that answer because as I said just a few minutes ago, we sure like comfort. We sure like convenience. People spend a lot of money to be comfortable. I mean, you literally can walk up to your Alexa and say, Alexa, turn down the heat. Alexa, turn on the lights. Alexa, I want to be just a little more comfortable. Could you play some quiet music in the background? <laughs> We're pretty comfortable. And the world is making us more comfortable. And friends, let me say this. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Because as we get comfortable, we get lazy. We get selfish. And we get limited in our scope of what it means to truly be dependent upon God. See, this is the reason why ultimately Jesus was preparing these missionaries to go out. Because they were going to get all types of reactions. And he goes through and he gives them a list of examples. He starts with the house. He says, when you go in a house, say there, peace be to this house. Notice he has them make a pronouncement. And then depending on how people responded to that, he would have a series of reactions. The first is if they received it, then you know there's a son of peace there. It means basically somebody who was intended to be peaceful. That was somebody that God was already preparing in their heart. Notice the language, the son of peace that this person was already inclined or open to peace. And if they received you, notice these words, say, peace be to this house. And that kind of sounds kind of weird to us. I mean, it just seems like empty words. Like, oh, peace to this house because they received me. I mean, we go around and somebody sneezes and we say, bless you. It's kind of meaningless to us. But the point is this, that actually those words actually had some substance. Listen to what Phil Riken, a pastor, says about this. He says, the phrase, peace to this house, these are now no mere idle words. In fact, they're a benediction, a blessing from God. Now he goes on to say, they're not magic words, but anyone who believes the gospel does in fact have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And here's the point. And that peace lasts forever. What you're really saying is God's peace is with you. That's the blessing you get for receiving the gospel. You're at peace with God. He's saying, do you know how awesome that is? That those words are pronounced upon those who believe? But here's the thing. What if they reject? If they reject, that blessing comes back upon you. Why? Because you're blessed in Christ. Either way, you win. You're blessed either because they receive you and you're extending the reminder of the blessing that comes through Christ, or even if they reject you, you're blessed because you're God's already and you lack nothing. Do you see the good news of the gospel? 
But as you go along, Jesus starts to say, let's talk about the etiquette in these houses. In verse 7, he says, remain in the same house, eat and drink whatever they provide. He goes on to say, for the laborer is deserving of wages. Basically, don't blush because they're taking care of you. This is the idea that you're serving the Lord, and it's a good thing. But then he goes on to say, but then don't go house to house. Don't say, you know what, I actually want to go to the Smith's house because they actually have a nice bed for me. I'm not sleeping on this straw. Uh, over here, Miss, Miss, uh, Miss, Miss White, she actually makes a greater meal. I think I might go there for dinner. What you start to do is use people and ultimately saying, that's not the point. The point is that ultimately you're on mission for Christ. What's interesting is Jesus first started talking about a house, but now he starts talking about towns. Draw your attention to the language he uses in verse 8. He says, eat and drink wherever they, whatever they set before you. That sounds very similar to what we read in the house. But also in the town, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Friends, I draw your attention to what their ministry literally was made up of. It was a word and deed ministry. They were to care for the sick. And by their words, or by their deeds, their words, people saw as effectual. People saw as legit. People saw as honest. See, the deeds were the proof that God's reign and authority was over and through the ministry of these individuals. But these deeds must always be accompanied by the words, for the words declared who the king was. And again, he would come back and say, but remember, not everybody's going to receive you. Some towns are going to push you away. He tells them to do something interesting here. He says, I want you to take your shoes and wipe the dust off. This basically serves as an object lesson saying that you're leaving that city to face judgment. That you're leaving these people uh, in a place of rejection and condemnation before God. That was a big deal. In fact, he goes on and he talks about some various cities in verses 13 through 15, where he talks about the woes. He, he mentions these three towns, and as he talks about these three towns, he ultimately reminds them that because of their hard-heartedness, judgment was coming. One of the things he says is found in verse 14. He says, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, those three towns. What he's basically saying is that judgment will be dispensed according to spiritual light. Friends, understand this. That all of us who've been given light, we've heard the word preached, we've grown up in Christian homes, we're going to be held accountable for that light. Just like those cities that had a lot of time and exposure with Jesus where they saw his miracles and they heard his words. They're held to a higher standard for all the good news that they receive. Friends, this makes a pastor very nervous. Because what makes us nervous is as we preach, we recognize there are many sitting in our own sanctuary that have had lots of exposure to the good news, but haven't received it. And there would be nothing worse than an object lesson of taking off the sandals and wiping off the dust and say, I'm leaving you to judgment. See, to reject the gospel is to bring judgment. The only way for hope is by receiving the good news that's found in Christ alone. So the real question for each of one of us is how have we responded to the gospel? 
See, we can spend all day talking about how we need to react better when people reject us, how we can respond more appropriately when we're in someone's house because they've received us, but the most important question is, how have we responded to the gospel ourselves? Where do we stand with this message that the king has come and he's coming again? Friends, I draw your final look at verse 16. And as you look at these verses here, this verse in verse 16, I want you to see the confidence that Jesus offers in the mission. Let me read this verse to you. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Friends, do you understand what a big deal it is of how we respond to the gospel? Because if we truly reject the message of hope, the message of King Jesus, we're rejecting Jesus himself. If we blow off the good news of the gospel, we're blowing off Jesus. And if we're blowing off Jesus, we're blowing off the Father who sent Jesus. It's a big deal. But it equally, for those of us on mission, gives us great hope to recognize that they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting him. They're not receiving us. They're receiving him. So friends, I ask you, where is your confidence regarding the mission? All throughout this, Jesus says, your confidence needs to be in him. Jesus is the one who sent and commissioned these missionaries. Jesus is the one who provides and protects these missionaries. And ultimately, Jesus is the one whom they're receiving or rejecting. As I was preparing for my sermon and just going over it this, this morning, I was doing what I always do, which is read a morning psalm. And as I picked up the psalm that I was reading today, it was Psalm 126, verse 6. And it said these words, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in his sheaves with him. You know what that psalm is saying? That psalm is saying, even if we go out like lambs for the slaughter, even if we go out and we experience rejection and hardship, we return home with joy because we have the joy of bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the lost, the wandering, the hopeless. Friends, I remind you, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Our job is to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would send laborers here. I think of Downriver, Lord. I think of the 250,000-some people that live in the Downriver area that need Jesus. I pray, God, that you would send missionaries and evangelists and church planners not just a downriver, but I think of Michigan as a whole. Lord, I think of the wreckage that has occurred these last two years as people are anxious and fearful and worrisome. 
Many families have experienced death and loss. Some have lost jobs, Lord, and have had transitions that they weren't planning for. In many ways, it's been a hard last couple of years. And Lord, as we look in the face of a new year, we pray that we as a church would be on mission, that we as individuals would be on mission, recognizing how utterly dependent we must be in you for fulfillment, that we would look to you as the sender, the appointer of those who would go, that we'd look to you as our provider and protector, and that, Lord, we would remember that our confidence is in you and in you alone. So, God, I pray that each and every one of us would come to terms with what are we believing about the gospel, personally, and also for our neighborhoods, for our families, for our communities. Lord, I pray that we would see, through a gospel lens, the harvest that you've prepared, and that we would be on mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.